Hebrews chapter 2. Our attention is going to be from verse 11 onwards, but again, for the sake of context, I'd like to begin in the fifth verse, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Lord, unveil your truth, unveil your word to us. Show us Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have a brother or a sister. I'm an only child. My mum and dad were actually married for 17 years, praying for a child. Praying, praying, praying for a child. The funny thing is, after I came, they never prayed again. (laughs) True story. My mother was 39 when I was born, and it was a traumatic birth. She almost died. I almost died. I wasn't expected to live through the night, certainly not the first weeks of my life. The doctor gave uh, up on me and prepared my mum and dad for the worst, thankfully, As you can see, the Lord was very merciful, and I'm preserved because of the Lord's great tender mercy towards me. I'm very conscious of that. Uh, But it meant that I grew up without a brother or a sister. I can only imagine life with a brother or a sister, but there's no reality to the imagination. I can't uh, relate to those who have had brother or sister. This week, I watched a short documentary that portrayed a man who, at age 65, found out that he had three sisters. 
It was a total shock to him. He had no idea. One of his sisters found him on the internet, made contact with him. He found out that he had three sisters living in Australia, and he was living in England. And so this documentary was the plane flight, the long-haul flight from England to Australia. By the way, if you start digging a hole in, Aus- in England, you'll end up in Australia. That's kind of the, the way things are. And so the documentary was about the preparation for and then the actual meeting of the three sisters with the brother for the first time at Sydney Airport in Australia. Eventually they met, they hugged each other uh, for the longest time and wept and then they had the joyous privilege of catching up on life for over six decades. They had a lot to catch up on. Quite the story. Perhaps in this room there's a real spectrum regarding life with a brother or a sister. And for many, it could be many, many happy memories. For others, not so much. Don't have too many wonderful memories of a brother, though you had one. The text that is before us today informs us that we, the people of God, have a brother. And his identity is shocking. It's breathtaking. I want to introduce you to your brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as soon as I say that, something rises up within us, I'm sure, that says, is that, is that allowable? Is that real? Can we really talk about the Lord Jesus Christ in that way? It seems like we shouldn't really go there. We recall from that because we're so used to the fact we need to defend the deity of Christ. And rightly so. Hebrews 1 is all about that, the deity of Christ. He's God in the flesh. But he's also truly human. Can we really say, Jesus is my brother? Well, we should rightly stand for the deity of Christ, rightly stand for the humanity of Christ. That's what is all before us in Hebrews 2. It's an unveiling of the humanity of Christ. The Athanasian Creed reads in part like this, We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh. Heresy lurks on every side, and yet there's a biblical road of truth. Jesus is not half God, half man. He's truly God, truly man. There was a heresy raging in the first century that is actually apparent in the New Testament, and this was the idea that Jesus was divine but not fully human. The idea was that Jesus appeared only to be human. He wasn't really human. He just appeared that way. And there's a theological name for that heresy. It's called docetism, which comes from the Greek word that means to appear. The idea would be if Jesus walked on a beach, when you look back, there wouldn't really be footprints left behind because he wasn't a real man, if you can get that idea. First John is actually addressing that many, many times. The spirit of Antichrist is someone who confesses not, will not confess, that Jesus Christ has, fill it out for me, come in the flesh. So there's a roadway of truth and there are ditches on either side. One ditch is the denial of the deity of Christ 
And the other ditch is a denial of his humanity. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to talk to a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses who came to my door. And uh, normally, I used to go to John chapter 1, verse 1, and just go from there. But I understand that they spend about five hours every week trying to reach people like me, trying to reach the Christian. And they have a spiel that lasts about five minutes on John chapter 1, verse 1. They have no idea what they're talking about, but they can recall the, the speech. And I didn't want to go there, so I went to Hebrews 1. Thank God we don't have to just go to one text to prove the deity of Christ. And... Um, I kind of acted all coy, and they, they kind of said, well, uh, do you have an interest in the Bible? I, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I kind of have an interest in, in the Bible. Have you read it? Yeah, actually, I, I have. I find it a fascinating book. And um, it was interesting, by the uh, 10 minutes, they, they were kind of saying, well, we'll, 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 we'll they, did, they actually said that. We'll, we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about this some more, because I knew they never would. They can't deal with the text. They can't deal with Hebrews. And though they would not take my literature with them, Hebrews 1 went with them. And every time they read it, it says what it says. But there we go. We've got to stand for truth. And uh, I think I've been blacklisted. I haven't seen anybody since. Uh, They won't come round my door. But that's all right. I don't want to win an argument. I want to win them to Jesus. And thankfully, the Bible speaks very clearly about the fact that Jesus is truly, fully divine and truly human. He is one person with two natures. He's truly God, truly man. Turning to our text in Hebrews chapter 2, we read these words. Verse 11, For he who sanctifies. Here, it's a reference to Jesus, I believe. One of his titles is sanctifier. He's not only Savior, he's not only Healer, he's not only the Baptizer, he's not only the Coming King, he is the Sanctifier. 1 Corinthians 1.30 reads like this, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. For the Christian, Jesus has sanctified us. That's a word that needs some explanation. To sanctify means to set apart. To set apart for holy purposes. There were uh, articles and vessels in the tabernacle and in the temple in Israel. Vessels and, uh, that were given over only solely for the purpose of the worship of God's people. They were not to, use for, to be used for mundane purposes. They were set aside for a holy purpose. And that's what it means to be sanctified. And Jesus has set every Christian aside for holy purposes. Isn't that a wonderful thought? He has done that. He set you apart. Jesus sanctifies. How does he do that? How does he do that? The text goes on to explain and those who are sanctified. Notice those words in verse 11. And those who are sanctified. That's a reference to the people of God, true believers, true followers of Jesus. I want to ask you today, does that include you? Would you describe yourself as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Jesus? And those two words are synonymous. If we believe in him, we'll follow him. Let me quote 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, hear this, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Jesus not only saves a people, he sets them apart for holy purposes. Hold your finger, if you will, in Hebrews 2. Let's go to chapter 10. This theme is developed further there. Hebrews chapter 10, just looking at a couple of verses. Hebrews 10, verse 10, And by that will, we, that's the people of God, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here the contrast is between the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which were continually repeated. There was no place for the high priest to sit down. He always had work to do. Jesus, in offering one sacrifice for sin, which was his own sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's in fact what verse 12 teaches us. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The implication was there's nothing more for him to do. He'd done it all. He'd achieved all that was necessary for our salvation. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. A quote from Psalm 110. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amazing tenses there. By one offering, a single offering, he has, past tense, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected a people by means of his sacrifice. Who are those people? Those people are those on the way of sanctification. So, understanding all that the Bible has to say about sanctification, it's this. Jesus sanctifies his people. You have been sanctified if you're a believer. You are at this moment sanctified. You are being sanctified because we're still in that process of sanctification. It's a state, it's a settled state, but we're on the way in sanctification. And one day that, that journey will be com complete. We will be fully sanctified. And that's what we call glorification. We're on that way. And that goes with the golden chain in Romans 8. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're on the way there, but it is so, so the case we will get there that the writer Paul there in Romans 8 talks of it as in the past tense. As, as far as God's concerned, it's as good as done. We're just working out in time what he has settled in eternity. Praise the Lord for that. You may think, will I ever be sanctified? Well, yes, and it'll be great to live with you there when you're sanctified. Amen. You think, I don't want to live with sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so when you get to heaven. They'll be sanctified. It'll be okay. It'll be, it'll be okay. They won't be annoying there. Praise the Lord. <laughs> to dwell above with those we love, oh, won't that be glory? To dwell below with those we know, that's another story. There it is. So the offering of Jesus is a once-for-all, perfect, complete, never-to-be-repeated offering. But the process of sanctification is ongoing. Those that say they've arrived there, 
just ask their spouse, just talk to someone who knows them. I remember talking to uh, a couple and the, the husband was making the claim that he was fully sanctified. And I looked at the wife and she just rolled her eyes. She just rolled her eyes. I think we should all be able to say, I haven't arrived, but praise God I've left. Uh, there's something of a journey. So sanctification is a past thing. God has sanctified you. It's a present day reality and it's a future hope. In the past, we've been set apart to God. In the present, there's this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, which will be fully completed in the future in what we call glorification. Notice back in Hebrews 2, we read these next words, all have one source. Let's read the text again. For he who sanctifies, believe that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's all believers, all have one source. Interesting. The New American Standard Bible here reads, are all from one Father. And if you have a NASB, you'll notice the word Father is italicized. That's to tell you not that this is a word being emphasized, it's emphasizing this. This is a word that's supplied by the translator and the translation team to help you understand what is being said. Without it, it might not appear apparent what is being communicated. But the actual word father is not there. It's supplied by the translators. So be aware of that. Now, understand this. It could be true that the word that should be supplied is father. There are theologians I've read who speak of this as one Family, and they believe that could be a legitimate interpretation also as something to be supplied to the text. All the text says is, are of one. One father, one family. It could be the family word that could be involved here because that would make sense in the passage. The collective human family. Jesus was of the collective human family. He was one of us. Exactly. And in fact, that's where the text takes us. Whether or not the word supplied could be father or family, the text takes us in the way of the family relationship. That's what is involved here. Here's the next phrase. That is why. What is why? The fact that we are all of one. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Them being the people of God. I want to say this. We're family. God is bringing many sons to glory, that's the context, and because of that, God is not ashamed to call us sons. And therefore, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He left the initiative with the Father, the Father called us sons, he's bringing many sons to glory, and because of that, the Father calling us sons, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, we might tend, I think, to, as I've already said, think that this would be heresy except it's scripture. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. I want that to settle in our hearts because that's not something we emphasize. We, we, we emphasize the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, rightly so, but do we normally talk about Jesus as our brother? We normally don't go there in our minds. When I read this text too, I can't help but think of Romans 1, where Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed. Does that mean he's kind of okay to talk about it, should it ever come up? No, he delighted in the gospel. You couldn't 
be around Paul for five minutes without hearing the gospel. He was a gospel man. I'm not ashamed means more than uh, I could mention it if it ever comes up. It's no, he delights in it. He's, his whole boast was in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'll proclaim it. And that's what he's doing in his life and ministry and in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed. And I think that's exactly what we have going on here. For Paul to not be ashamed was a way of saying how much, much, much more than I'm just, I, I, I'll talk about it. I'm not ashamed to talk about it. That's his boast. And in the same way, Jesus is glorying the fact that he can call us brothers. Wow. I wrote in my notes, wow. I wanted to make sure I said it. I want to say it backwards. Wow. There it is. Let's go in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus calls us brothers. Yeah, the divine Son of God so identifies with us. He calls us brothers. Matthew 12, look at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Who, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew 28. Let's go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28. Just jumping into a text here. After the resurrection, verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to, to Galilee, and there they will see him. So this is not an isolated incident. Jesus calling the people that were believing him and obeying God's word, brothers. Let's go back to Hebrews, and Hebrews now quotes... Uh, the Hebrew writer quotes three Old Testament texts which predict this family relationship. Go to verse 12. This is Hebrews 2 and verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is a quotation from Psalm 22. Hold your place in Hebrews. We'll go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. In other words, a psalm that predicts the future work of the Messiah. It's written about a thousand years BC by David. And if you remember, the first words of Psalm 22 are the words Jesus actually cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe what's happening there is very, very evident. Just as in our day, if someone uh, shouted out, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. They're referring, we know, to a hymn. Amazing grace. And they don't have to relate all of the words of that hymn for us to get that. Oh, amazing grace. Yes, that's a hymn. Well, when Jesus on the cross, with very little breath in his lungs, said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which was the way of saying, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? I, make, I believe he's making a thunderous statement right here, right now. I'm fulfilling all of, of Psalm 22. He didn't have to quote the entire psalm. By quoting the first verse, the Jewish people, because this was their songbook, knew the rest of the hymn, the rest of the psalm. This is an amazing, amazing psalm. And it's really, when we read of it, you're, you're, you're kind of below the cross. You can picture the scene. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Look at verse 8. This was actually said by the crowd around the cross. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. This is interesting too because this, like a number of different places in the scripture, speaks of the human mother, but not a human father. Profound. We move on. Verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Many believe that was true of Jesus as he was there on the cross. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. Look at verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. This speaks of Gentiles. Romans were around the cross. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. What amazing words. Crucifixion wasn't even invented 1,000 years BC. But the Holy Spirit knew that's what would happen to the Messiah. None of this ever happened in the life of David. That's why it's a messianic song. He was never pierced. He never had his hands and feet pierced. But he wrote by the Holy Spirit and therefore was able to portray Christ on the cross 1,000 years on from when he was living. Never happened to David. Did happen to the Messiah. You ever been amazed at your Bible? There it is. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Look at verse 18. Again, fulfilled around the cross. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Never happened to David. Did happen to the Messiah. All this to say, when we come to verse 22, which is what is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, this is Jesus talking. I, that's Jesus, will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The I there is Jesus. And amazing as that is, it gets even more amazing because he says, I will proclaim your name. And I believe here it's a reference to the name of the Father. So Jesus is in the midst of the congregation. In fact, let's go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. In the midst, verse 12, of the congregation. And if you look up that word congregation, it's our friend ecclesia, which is the word for church. I believe it would be a legitimate translation to say, in the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. Now, congregation is the word that's used here, and I don't believe it's a, a bad translation in any way at all. 
But I believe it will help our understanding if there was a consistency of translation. When you see ecclesia, say what it is by any means, but keep the same word and you'll then recognize the same thing is involved. That's not what happens here. So what is being revealed to us is in the midst of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, which are the brothers, the many sons, the children of Abraham. In the midst of the church, Jesus proclaims the name, I believe, of the Father to his brothers and sings his praise. That's a mouthful, let me say it again. In the midst of the church, Jesus proclaims the name of the Father to his brothers and sings his praise. Again, I can't help think but of John 17. Let me read something from there. Verse 6, I've manifested your name, believe it's the name of Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. On to verse 20, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, verse 26, I made known to them your name. I believe it's the name Father. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus is saying, I've made known your name, Father, to the people you gave me and I will make it known. I would suggest to you that Jesus today is making the name of the Father known. Amen. It's stunning. Hebrews 2 verse 13. Then there's a second quotation. And again... I will put my trust in him. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8. We had Isaiah 8 read to us earlier in the service. And there are two quotations in Hebrews 2 from Isaiah chapter 8. Literally, it reads, I will, having put my trust in him. That's, that's hard to express in English, and it's a good translation to say, I will put my trust in him. But if we took a very, very literal translation of these Greek words, it would read like this. I will, having put my trust in him. What's in view here is a settled decision. I'm trusting him. I'm not flinching. I'm not just going to trust him when things look good. I'm going to trust him through the whole process of life and death and burial and resurrection. I will, having put my trust in him. My trust is in him and it's a settled thing. I want to ask you, where is your trust today? And is it a settled thing? It was for Jesus. Then we have the third quotation from Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 18. The third quotation in Hebrews, the second one from Isaiah 8. And it reads this, and again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, here's how we can lay this out. God the Father gave Jesus the Father's children, to be his, Jesus' brothers. And because the Father is not ashamed to call us sons, 
Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. It's mind-blowing. The story of the gospel. There's something in the heart of humanity that longs for a superhero. Through many decades now, superheroes like Superman and Spider-Man and Batman always do well at the box office. They're always very popular, either in written form or in cartoons or in animated movies or full-blown movies. There's something in all of us that wants that superhuman to show up and rescue us. Someone with superhuman traits and abilities. They can lift cars. They can, they can jump buildings. They can fly through the air. They can, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's Superman. There he is. He's looking out for us. And movie makers know that and will even spend millions of dollars on such movies knowing that people will show up, they will flock to watch the movie. There's something in the heart of every man, every woman, every boy and girl who wants someone to be out there who's bigger and better than us, who's looking out for us. You ever been on a freeway and had a flat tire and think, where's Superman when I need him? Now, ladies and gentlemen, all of that is fantasy. All of that is fiction. I don't want to burst any bubbles, but you know that's not real. But we, the people of God, have something real. Actually, someone real. God really became a man. What a statement. God became a man. Yeah, to help us, to rescue us. Not merely from one enemy, but all our enemies. The devil, death, sin, the curse, slavery to sin. Not only death, but fear of death. That's what is related to in this passage. It's breathtaking truth. God, the Son, took on the form of man. Not only obeyed in life, but obeyed in death. Not only in death, but in the cruelest, most brutal kind of death. He lived a sinless life. And this isn't fantasy. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Never had to say sorry. We stagger at the miracles of Jesus, but have you staggered at the life of Jesus? Never once having to say, oh, sorry. Never. Not once. What a life. And by his death on that cross, the Father placed the sins of all those who would ever believe on him. Isaiah 53, again written 700 years before the time of Christ, portrays the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the heart of the gospel. And Jesus was punished in our place and took the punishment we deserved. It should have been me. should have been us. But instead, a substitute lamb stood in our place. The crowd around the cross said, we believe in you. If you come down, we believe in him. Because he stayed up. He endured the wrath that we deserved. God's wrath was meted out on him in full force. It was a cosmic thing. And it's as if God closed the curtains and he was doing business with his son. The sun didn't shine for the hours. 
of crucifixion day when father and son were doing business as God laid on him the iniquity of us all and he was punished in our place. And there was a time when the father said, that's enough, you've done it. And it was over. And Jesus was able able to cry out on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished, it's done, it's paid for, it's complete. Hallelujah. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2, 24. He did it. He literally did it. This is not science fiction. This is not fantasy. This is not fiction in any way. This is real, folks. He did it. He really came. And he really rose again from the dead bodily. And he really is now at the place of all authority in this universe. And guess what? This God-man is your brother looking out for you. Wow. I didn't have a brother. But I got one now. And he's looking out for me. Especially when I'm tempted. He's coming to my aid. We've got such a flippant attitude towards sin. I know we haven't been in the direct side of the presence of God and we're more inclined to excuse our sin because that's what we're used to. But once we glimpse the holiness of God in reality for even 10 minutes, we'll be so aghast at the atrocity of sin. And Jesus comes not to whip us away from some calamity that might mean our earthly death, but sin and its consequences, its eternal consequences. Every sin is cosmic treason, and Jesus is there to help us because he's been tempted as much and far more than we could ever be tempted, yet was sinless without the stain of sin. This is gospel truth, breathtaking gospel truth. His complete identity, identification with humanity. Look at verse 16 of Hebrews 2. For it's surely not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring or the seed of Abraham. Jesus didn't become an angel to save angels. He didn't become some animal to save animals. He became a man to save the sons of men. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. It's interesting in the Greek, it's the word blood that comes before flesh. The children share in blood and flesh. He himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. There it is again. It's not a typo. His brothers in every respect. He became like the brothers. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Who's the people? It's the brothers. It's the many sons. It's the children. It's the seed of Abraham. Propitiation is a wonderful word. I hope you know it. It means wrath is averted because of a sacrifice. And Jesus, in his atoning work on the cross, has removed God's wrath for the brothers, for the people, for the many sons. Do you and I get this? This is a blockbuster. Someone should, oh, they already have, made a movie about Jesus. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again from you. He's seated 
at the place of all authority for you. And he's interceding for you. And he's able to help you when you're tempted. It is right, always right, to stress the deity of Christ. It is always right to stress the humanity of Christ. But I think today our text takes us even further in the revelation of his humanity. He's your big brother. You walk through this life. He sees you always. Perhaps you had a brother and you were thinking, if only I could get hold of him, but he's not answering the phone. This one is available at all times. He who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be rescued. What have you done with this one who became as we are yet without sin? Christian, do you realize what a brother you have? I'll say this. Roman Catholic Church has a false understanding of the Father, seeing him as severe. And Jesus, well, he's, a, he's more, like, more like us, but he's still the ultimate judge, of course, and a little bit harsh, a little bit hard. So thankfully, we have Mary. Mary, she's very sympathetic. And the way to get our prayers answered is not to go to the Father or to Jesus, which is a violation of all that the Bible teaches. Pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. The idea is talk to Mary because Jesus can't resist his mother. That's a complete failure to understand God, the Lord Jesus, and his true humanity. And the Bible says go nowhere else. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. And every other mediator is a false mediator. You might think, well, Mary must be really perturbed by all of these prayers going to her. She's not perturbed at all. They never get through. They're illegitimate. Her eternal bliss is not hampered by the billions of people praying to her. But it's idolatry, folks, to pray to someone other than God to worship someone other than God. The revelation of the New Testament is you don't need Mary or the saints. You've got all that you need in your big brother, the Lord Jesus. He has fully identified with you. And he understands. You can't say to him, you don't understand. Oh, he does. You have no one who understands. Mary doesn't understand you like Jesus. The saints don't understand you like Jesus. He was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. This is stunning. Stunning. Ladies and gentlemen, he is more than a fictional superman. This God-man is your brother. And he's here for you right when you need him. What hinders you from coming to him? What hinders you? What, do you? what piece of information do you need now that hasn't already been presented to you? You're entirely now responsible for hearing. Once you've heard, what are you going to do with this Jesus? Reject him? Jesus said, he who is not for me is against me. And Christian, what are you going to do when you're tempted? Are you going to call upon him? Are you going to recognize the help that is available to you? 
You can cry for Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man in vain. They're not going to hear you. They don't exist. False gods don't exist. Jesus does. The God-man. And he's available 24-7. He who calls on his name shall be saved. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Right when you need him, he's there for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the God-man. And yes, we'll say it, our brother. Thank you. How can we say thank you enough? We just call upon the name of the Lord and with the word, the name Jesus, we have access Access to the greatest Savior, the only Savior. Lord, would you please reveal yourself to everyone under the sound of my voice that we would know you, that there's no friend like you. You're closer than any brother. You're closer than the brother I never had. Lord, we're a thankful people. In Jesus' name, amen.